There's essentially mistakes that are worth correcting and mistakes that are not worth correcting. If the mistake that they make doesn't really affect the meaning of the sentence, it's not really worth being corrected. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 132. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Benny, and our guest, who happens to be my Spanish tutor and friend, Emmanuel Vasconcelos of Hispandom.mx. This is one of the rare times that I actually speak English with Emmanuel, even though I met him as an absolute beginner in Spanish, Spanish, but we'll get to that later. First, I'd love to hear from you, Emmanuel, about your language learning story. Could you tell us about what languages you speak and how language learning came into your life? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks a lot for, for inviting me to, to the podcast. And yeah, it's a pleasure meeting you, uh, Benny, as well. So, so yeah, when it comes to uh, languages, it's kind of like a, um, like a weird story, I guess. I, I guess I technically wasn't very good in English. You know, in Mexico, like in uh, a lot of Spanish-speaking countries, you, you have to... Uh, studying English in school and, and so on with, you know, basic grammar drills and stuff like that. But I wasn't really particularly good at it at the beginning. But then out of nowhere, I just started to to become better. And um, uh, at the beginning, you know, I didn't understand the process of why why that happened. I actually didn't start to understand it until, you know, later I... Um, uh, I was in the language academy and I was studying a little bit of Stephen Krashen. And then that's when I, when I realized that pretty much what, what happened to me is that many of the things that I was interested in when I was a little kid, they were all in English, you know, like the music that I listened to, the video games that I play, the movies that I watch, the shows that I watch, they were all in English. And I had to deal with the language, right, to get to the stuff that I actually liked. So I think it was that process of, you know, massive comprehensible input that made me actually speak, that made me actually acquire the language would be the correct term and to speak it. And then I I started to notice that that could happen with other languages as well if I received that same time of exposure. So yeah, that, that was my experience with English and that is pretty much what sparked my interest in languages to go into university and actually study. I actually studied foreign languages. And there, you know, you know I had to learn French. I also had to learn a, a little bit of Italian as well, but I focused more on French. And yeah, that was um, a really good experience as well. It's actually kind of interesting because in the university, I already spoke English, but we have to deal more with, you know, the proper grammar and the proper literature. So I got that academic side of the language, which I also enjoyed as well. And with the French, I was starting French. So it was once again, that beginner aspect of learning the language from, from zero and um, kind of trying to recreate what happened to me in, in English. And, and yeah, yeah, it was, that was sort of my, my experience of how I, I started in this whole language thing. So very good. And of course, uh, Elizabeth knows you through your work as a Spanish teacher. 
So how did you get from your own language learning experience to then into helping others with their language journeys? Yeah, yeah I guess it's um, the main thing was at university that I had to learn French and I and I wanted to kind of like reproduce what had happened to me in English with French. And that is eventually what led me to the field of language acquisition, like the proper field of language acquisition of how, you know, like teachers teach the language methodologies and all of that. And I just found that feel like quite, quite fascinating. And that is pretty much what inspired me to be a teacher. And I was originally, I was not a Spanish teacher. I was actually an English teacher in, in, in my, in my country. And I was also, after I, I graduated from the language degree, I, I also started studying a degree in engineering. And in my spare time, I also taught uh, English lessons for, you know, small schools around my, around my city. Uh, but then it started to become a little bit more difficult because my degree started to become more demanding and I had to do internships and I didn't have time to actually go to a school and teach. Uh, so I needed a more flexible alternative to teach. So that's when I discovered it was like around in 2015 when I discovered, you know, the whole online language teaching stuff. Yeah. And, um, uh, I, I was thinking to myself, like, what's the best thing that I can offer people online? And because it's like, I'm not a native English, uh, speaker. So, you know, like a Mexican English speaker, I guess I can do it, but I think it's better if I offer people Spanish because that's my, that's my, my native language. So yeah, I just started teaching Spanish online. I started to get students, but it was in a very kind of like informal way at the beginning because I still didn't consider myself like a Spanish teacher. But then later I started studying um, like um, diplomas and then I later went on to study a master's degree in Spanish teaching as a foreign language because I really wanted to specialize on that. So yeah, that's kind of my story of how I became specifically a, a Spanish teacher. Yeah. And that's where my story begins with you. <laughs> so I met Emmanuel because he was recommended to me from one of my language exchange partners. Uh, Paolo was learning English with you. And I said, I'm having a really hard time finding a Spanish teacher that I connect with. And uh, as Benny has said many times before, I really needed a language putter upper. I needed someone who was willing to only speak with me in Spanish. And so I see this as a problem with um, some of my friends. When they talk to me in a target language, they'll often pop out and speak all in English. They'll say they can't get to a word. And so they immediately ask it. They're like, oh, you know, that word basket, basket. How do you say basket? And they're saying it to me in English. And what happens is you're training your brain to go to the filing cabinet that is English in your head. So when you're stuck at a party with only native speakers of your target language, you're going to be in trouble because you're not going to have me there to tell you what that word means or your tutor. So when I came to you, I was already a disciple of the speak from day one method. That's how I learned French. It's how I found fluent in three months. And I asked you, could you only speak to me? And I think I sent you a message in Spanish and said, can you only speak to me in English and in Spanish? And so I joke because I think we've known each other since my hair was short. My hair is very long now. It's been years, but we have spoken maybe two or three times in English and it's been outside of our lessons. In our lessons, we speak solely in Spanish. And this is the interesting part. And I want listeners to hear this. I had only been studying Spanish for like a week when I met you. 
Oh, really? I thought it was it was longer than that. Well, I I, I did a lot of Benny's hacks, which is, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, which was learn how to say five sentences myself. And I was using um, Spanish Uncovered, which I will I will put in the show notes so you can take a look at it. Um, but I yeah, I had I look like an ex like I was way more advanced because I did some of the tips that Benny talks about. My question to you is, first of all, how did you do that? You know, because I often hear from our challengers, you know, I can't speak to someone for 30 minutes in the target language. Now, Benny, you use Google Translate and you're really good at, at going back and forth. And I can't, I cannot type and talk at the same time. So what I do is I just circle around the words or I say, if I mean to say it's cold, but I can't think of that word, I'll say it's not hot. How did you, um, I'm sure this wasn't the first time you did it, it was with me, how did you how do you get students to do that? Um, how do you speak to someone for 30 minutes when they know very little like I did? I think I knew like 20 words in Spanish when we first started talking. You stay with the verbs pretty much. Uh, so really like kind of like the foundation of, of building sentences are, are verbs. So when um, when I, I I have to pay a lot of attention to the student and to the things that they can do. But when I identify that they can use certain verbs, I always try to target the conversation to those verbs and asking them questions back using those verbs and not, you know, not changing topics abruptly with another verbs that I don't know if they know. And, you know, I ask them questions with the same verbs that they are using and then they answer me and then I'm, I have to be... Uh, paying attention closely so that they can tell me with their with their with their speech what are the other verbs that perhaps they know and then from those other verbs I just throw those verbs back at them and then they say uh, something else and then oh more verbs okay they know this and this and then let's go there and that also helps me to see what is the health of the verbs that they use like if they have a verb that they use correctly okay we are going to circle it you know a little bit. But sometimes it happens that they want to say something and they kind of know the verb, but not well. So, okay, let's stay on that. So I'm asking you more questions. I'm going to ask you more questions about that verb. And with the way that I ask you, I'm pretty much like showing you how to use a verb and then you get to use it. And it's a back and forward like that. But it's mainly a, it's a dance of verbs, pretty much. I just focus on, on the verbs and try to exploit them as much as I can. And also... The other thing is using a lot of cognates. There's a lot of cognates between between Spanish and, and English. And I, I also, I guess the other aspect that is also kind of like beneficial for me is that, you know, yeah, Spanish and English are kind of a little bit similar. But the thing is that the the cultures of, for example, the Mexican culture and the American culture are, are, are really connected. And, you know, a lot of Americans know a little bit of Spanish or they recognize some words. So I can exploit that. I can use that. And I, I can also use cognates to sort of like, uh, for example, maybe they don't know, they don't know the word for like a, like a fan in, in English. But if I use a, the Spanish word uh, ventilador, oh, it sounds kind of like ventilator. It sounds kind of like, like fan and they will get me. I know they will get me. So yeah, that's the sort of stuff that I do. I focus on the verbs that I, I think they know. I throw them back at them with questions and I try to use really easy vocabulary that is easy to understand for a, for, a, for an English speaker. And I just try to see, I just try to push as, as far as I can. Uh, yeah, so if it's just five minutes, it's okay. If it's 10 minutes, you know, whatever I can get away with. So that's, that's pretty much how, how I do it. But I need to observe 
because everything is, is is in the moment, really. So you were saying that basically you've got this um, great academic experience with language learning uh, before you got into teaching. And you especially were a big fan of the comprehensible input approach. And as it happens, I've had Stephen Krashen on the podcast and I've interviewed him. And um, what's interesting for me is when I first started blogging, I had a lot of people uh, reply to me very frustrated saying that the speak from day one approach is uh, conflicting with comprehensible input because a lot of people who use that uh, approach, they absorb materials first, whether that be uh, through studying or through listening and watching uh, TV shows and the idea of producing for them conflicts with it. Fortunately, Stephen Krashen himself told me that's not true. And uh, he sees it as completely um, uh, like functional with the comprehensional input approach. But I would love to hear your thoughts on how you see a speak from day one approach like, like you did with Elizabeth or like you've done with many of our uh, Fluent in Three Months challengers that they have very little and they're starting conversations with a native speaker how does that align or how does it not align with comprehensible input as a language learning theory? Yeah, so the thing of comprehensible input is that, for example, how how many people interpret the whole theory is like to spend a lot of uh, time listening to the language, listening to messages that you can understand, and eventually you 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 get to speak the language little by little, step by step. And yeah, that totally works. And, and yeah, you can totally do it that way, uh, but it's kind of slower. You know, it's, you're gonna get there, but it's a little bit slower. Uh, and there's no conflict if you try to produce at an early stage. And, you know, I would actually think that if you're an adult, it is actually recommended to use both, to use a comprehensible input and to also produce, and that's actually going to get you there faster. But if you just want to use comprehensible input, like the classic, way of understanding comprehensible input it's going to work but it's going to be slower if you start producing immediately it's going to be it's going to be faster yeah so so it's not a contradiction really it's they can both be parallel but if you start speaking from day one it's going to be it's going to be faster so for for those that are listening and we will put in the show notes the episode number for stephen krashen's i have such a a crush on stephen krashen like i just love the way he talks Fenny, you're saying something funny, I can tell, but you're muted. You mean you have a crash on him? Oh, yes. Puns. <laughs> I love puns. They make me so happy. Yes, I have a crash on Stephen Crushin. And um, because, you know, what he talks about is comprehensible input. What does that mean for those that are listening? Because there's lots of definitions out there. And it's basically finding something that really interests you and then getting it at a level that's slightly above what your level is and absorbing that information a lot. So what I did with with Emmanuel without knowing it was comprehensible input. One of the things that interests me most in language learning is connecting with other people. So I was very curious and Emmanuel will tell you, I, I try not to ask inappropriate questions, but I'm always asking personal questions like, you know, where do your parents live and what are your grandparents like? Because that is what interests me. That's what lights me up. I find it interesting that you you mentioned this, and I think it's really important for language learners to hear this, but also tutors that are listening in. You don't offer corrections. You've never once said to me, Elizabeth, stop. You're saying it wrong. 
Um, what you've done is you've modeled the correct sentence after. And as a learner, I have to pay attention as well. I have to think, oh, he said it this way. One thing that you do, if I'm not getting it because I'm not paying attention, I usually am having lessons with Emmanuel in my fuzzy bunny, bunny slippers, pajamas, no makeup, hair up in a bun. I mean, if he snapped, if he like took pictures, screenshots of that, he could ransom me. But um, I'm doing it because I, I don't ever, sometimes I'm not paying attention. And what you'll do is you'll ask me, you'll go, oh, I had that. And I'll be like, no, sorry. I meant to say you had that or he had that. So you fix the tenses without feeling like it's a correction. I want to talk to you right now about stage fright in language learners, because a lot of them, myself, and I think even Benny included, because Benny has some rules for his language putter-uppers now that I think he had to get to because things weren't working. But one of them for me is, you know, don't correct me every five seconds, because it's going to stop my train of thought. If you really are itching to give me a correction, and you feel like it, you know your brain's going to ooze out of your 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 ear if you don't tell me. Type it in the chat, and when I have time, I will look at it. So for those students that have that think that is the way to language learning, like just to be corrected every five seconds, and they come to you with stage fright or speech fright, they don't want to talk, they don't want to be corrected, they don't want to feel bad. What do you recommend they do to get out of that? Um, that kind of paralyzation. And Benny, I'd love to throw this question to you after Emmanuel, because I, I know that you've seen it a lot with language learners as well. How do you recommend that they, if they've had a bad experience or if they've got too much self-judgment or self-criticism, how do you help them get out of that? Mm -hmm. Um, by that, you mean like, for example, when they speak to native speakers or. Yeah. Like when they're, when they're in a lesson and they're afraid to talk. Like they'll, you know, you'll have that, we've talked about this before. You'll have students that for the first 10 minutes, they only speak in English and they've been learning Spanish for two years. Like, why are they not talking? It's because there's some mental block, some obstacle, whether it be their judgment or previous uh, experiences. Yeah, it's a tricky situation because it's also, you know, you also have the other, the other factor, which is the teacher, right? And what, what is the teacher doing? Because the teacher might be promoting that anxiety intentionally or not, or not. So yeah, I mean, from a teacher's perspective, I have to be really careful when it comes to, to corrections. I do believe that I correct, but like you have to do it in a certain way. Um, um, there's essentially like, mistakes that are worth correcting and mistakes that are not worth correcting if what the student says if the mistake that they make doesn't really affect the meaning of the sentence is not really worth being corrected for example if someone says i don't know a boy um a el cafeteria or something like that uh, you know, that doesn't, the, the mistake right there was the gender of cafeteria, right? That should be feminine, not, not, not masculine, but it's, it's not really worth correcting because people would get that. Even though it is wrong, it's okay. People would get that. Uh, the mistakes that are worth like sort of correcting are mistakes that actually affect the meaning of what the person was trying to say. But actually those mistakes are easy to correct because you can correct them with just a clarification question is like, Oh, you went there or there, or did you go there or the other person went there or who, who went there? You know, it's actually, it's actually quite natural to correct those sorts of mistakes. And just by asking those questions, people realize, Oh, I made a mistake. Yeah. I need to correct myself. So, you know, and it's supernatural and it doesn't feel like a correction. It doesn't feel like 
I'm superior than you and I'm asking you to do this. It's just like, no, I want to know. I want to get the, the, the correct information to make sure that I understand things clearly. So yeah, I, I would recommend teachers to do that because yeah, it's, it's actually, I, I've also had experiences with teachers that they just stop me and correct me quite directly and it feels horrible. And it actually just builds this anxiety that I don't want to speak. I don't want to say anything because I'm sure that I'm going to make another mistake. And then they're going to yell at me and think I'm stupid or something. So from the teacher's perspective, there's a lot of power that you have there. And you have to be super careful of how you you correct um, uh, students. And from the student's point of view, I would recommend them to take this mindset into, into consideration really uh speaking another language is difficult and you're going to make tons of tons of mistakes and if you mess up your your genders or if you mess up certain grammatical details it doesn't really matter what really matters at the beginning is to get your message across as best as you get it across if your teacher is like really mad at you because you you know you you're not using the plural tense there or something don't take it too seriously. Like what, what really matters is that you you can get it, you know, get your message across as, as best as possible. So yeah, sometimes you don't have to listen to your teacher or you don't have to <laughs> take your teacher that seriously because yeah, there are some teachers out there that, yeah, they really affect the psyche of the, of the student too much. And I, I would recommend students to not take that, you know, that seriously. So that's, you know, that's the best that I can recommend. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I always um, like to turn it back with people that we are judging ourselves so much, but sometimes it is the teacher's fault. And I am ruthless with this. I, I will decide this teacher is bad for me rather than say, rather than when I get so many corrections, rather than saying I'm an idiot because I already know I'm an idiot. You know, I, I don't need a teacher to remind me that. I, I go into language lessons as a beginner needing a confidence boost. Um, but then again, as an intermediate and advanced learner, that is actually when I do want one of those pedantic teachers who will stop me mid-sentence and correct me on important mistakes. And it really depends on the process. And I try to make this clear from the beginning but if a teacher is way too adamant by correcting me and I'm still an absolute beginner, then I ditch them. I, I just think this, this teacher is good for some people in cer certain situations. But right now, what I need in my life is not this. I'm just a beginner in this language. I need confidence and I need to get momentum. And in general, when I do communicate with a teacher, rather than the chat, I would uh, ask a teacher to open a Google Doc and share that with me and just put everything into that as I'm talking. Cause then you can color code it and they would like have one version, what I actually said and then read out the wrong word and then put in the right word and maybe add a quick explanation. And the great thing is I can have flow and have a, a sort like get my point across for several minutes. And then we can kind of take a diversion or I can decide to take a diversion and open up the document and be like, oh, wh why did you correct that? And then sometimes I don't need to ask why. I just know, oh, I conjugated that verb wrong or something. But yeah, that's that's uh, what I do with this. Yeah, another, uh, and, yeah and uh, another thing that I wanted to say is that, yeah, it also depends on which stage of your language development are you right like in the in the beginning stage everything is really fragile and yeah giving like those sorts of ruthless uh corrections at the very beginning oh that's that's just brutal but yeah uh, of course if you are now more like an intermediate or advanced 
uh, speaker, you can handle that because you already have built the confidence in the language. So that sort of criticism you can deal with. You know, you you have you already have like the fortitude to do that. But when you're starting a language, yeah, that that's the part where the, the corrections have to be like super, super, super. Uh, you have to be really smart with with your corrections from a teacher's perspective. Of course. Now, uh, not all students come with the same goals that uh, we have in the Fluent Three Months Challenge. How do you adapt your teaching approach based on the goals that students have? And what have been the range of different goals? Like obviously people coming from our community, their goal is I want to be able to have a 15 minute conversation after three months. And that applies a lot of overlap for the kind of methodology you might use. But how do you, how do you adjust based on different goals and what kind of goals uh, have you had people working with you uh, trying to aim towards? Yeah, mainly um, I would say that most common goals are like, it could be like family related. Someone is uh, like an, an American person is married to a Mexican person and they want to get to, to know the family or maybe job related. People are working with a lot of Spanish speakers or sometimes, you know, I have students that are from the um, the two coasts, the east and the west, and I think that there's a lot of Spanish uh, speakers there, and they sort of want to know, you know, what what they're what they're doing, um, and there's people who sort of want to learn Spanish in a general way, and there's others that want to learn Spanish from a very specific perspective. Uh, it all depends on the situation. If it's more kind of like um, how would how how would I say like a more specific um situation for example maybe a doctor or someone who has to who has to deal with patients and all of that i would say it's like more like a dialogue driven approach where i try to like simulate you know the situations the vocabulary that they may use the most common questions and yeah that that would need to be like hyper personalized because i need to know the um, the situation the specific situation of the person but also i know that at the same time i have to help them build the spanish core of the most common used verbs so it's a double task it's all about you know building that foundation of spanish with the core verbs and the core vocabulary but at the same time i need to add another layer which is the functionality of spanish that they need right away because there's some people that need a certain um competence of spanish right away right like like doctors like nurses they need like certain dialogue certain vocabulary right away so i have to do that double job uh if person if there's if there's people that do not need that sort of like intense interaction that they're going to have immediately uh we we start from just creating the spanish core first and then uh, we also start to use um, dialogues or scripts, but they are a little bit more, you know, for casual situations, just having normal day-to-day -day conversations and stuff like that. But if it's more, you know, if it's more targeted, the dialogue needs to be way, way more targeted to their specific situation. So it's pretty much a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I would even say that in terms of challengers, some of the challengers that have the most success, aside from the secret of speaking every day, like recording themselves every day, they have a specific type of conversation they want to have. And that keeps away the boredom because uh, just a 15 minute conversation, you can do that, but you could also make it a 15 minute conversation about language learning or whatever your passions are. Um, and as intermediate and advanced learners as well, and Benny, you have modeled this quite a few times, finding a specific project to work on. So I'm intermediate, 
uh, in Spanish. I've been learning for a long time. I'm comfortable in basic conversations. I'm getting bored. So what I am doing is taking on a new project. I'm going to learn how to teach something that I actually teach in English. I'm going to learn how to do it in Spanish. And that's what we're working on together. So for the intermediate learners that are listening, there are certain things, certain aspects that you can take from these conversations that seem like they're all about beginners and use them for intermediate learners as well. That is my next question for you. So you have worked with me in the challenge. I remember uh, you've done you've done several um, Spanish challenges with me and you've actually asked a lot of questions when I was doing my German challenge. And you would always be like, is today a video day? <laughs> like That was the big question. What do you, what's the new assignment? So you know a lot about the challenge and the process. What would you say one or two of the best aspects of the challenge are and how can listeners that are listening now incorporate them into their lives? Well, I would say that the main thing that you guys do is to incentivize speaking by having the challengers record uh, a video. And also that that seems to be like a big deal for the students because they know that they need to have a certain level by a certain date and they need to apply themselves for that. So I think that's a, that's a really powerful thing that you guys do because they really don't want to make a bad video, you know, so <laughs> because it's sort of a little bit embarrassing, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, that, that pretty much like motivates them to to speak a lot. But I, I think that you also give them like a sense of community as well, that they are not doing it alone. And I'm pretty, pretty sure that the students um, uh, exchange resources, right? I think that's something that that happens a lot. So you're giving them like a community, you're giving them um, um a moment where they have to perform and that's the other thing it's kind of like like music right it's not the same time it's not the same thing when you're just practicing alone in your room then when they say hey in two weeks we're gonna have a concert so or in two months we're gonna have a concert you're gonna apply yourself and everything is going to be way way more serious because there's more more stuff at, at stake so i think that's really good to have like that sort of goal that by this date you need to perform this because at the end of the day language is a performance skill and for performance skills you need like a date where you are going to perform that skill in front of in front of people and and yeah that's i, I think that's that's probably the, the best aspect of the of the challenge that you guys offer and also you know the sense of community which is, is also so super important with that so one reason that we wanted to have you on is because we could get this interesting other perspective because a lot of our guests are uh, people who take part in the challenge themselves, whereas you have helped a lot of people who are taking on the challenge. So I'd love to hear what your perspective is on, like, what advice would you give somebody? I mean, obviously, in within the challenge, we have loads of advice and we have coaching from them, for them and everything. But purely from the teacher's perspective, what do you think would be the ideal things that they would do as they're coming to your class? If you could, uh, like, based on what you've seen, the common issues that they have, what kind of things would you recommend in general? Somebody with such an intensive spoken challenge, especially something like the, like ours, that you have to make certain updates uh, like at the end of every 30 days. Like, what would you recommend that could potentially help 
ease that challenge for people, especially as they work with their teachers? Yeah, I would say to divide everything in two parts. So you have the, um, the comprehension aspect of the language and the production aspect of the language. Um, the nice thing about the comprehension aspect of the language is that you can work on it on, on your own by pretty much um, getting sort of like graded novels or stuff that you can read that you can sort of understand even if you are even if you are um, a beginner. So the the whole comprehension aspect, you know, with songs, with material, or there's also you know, for example, in French you have French in action, and that pretty much created a whole genre of TV shows that are aimed at students to learn, you know. There's like shows like this for for every language, pretty much. There's like one for Spanish, for German, or whatever. So when it comes to to that, you can you can actually be super independent and work on on acquiring as much input as you can. So you can do that in the um in the comprehension side. Now the comprehension side is a little bit more a little bit uh, chaotic because you start picking things up. You know, there's a whole way in which your brain is going to start identifying certain patterns first and then more more complicated patterns later like for example in spanish identifying uh the genders or what or or the plurals is something that happens you know at early stages but getting for example indirect uh personal pronouns or maybe the subjunctive is something that happens way later so in order to be active in order for your brain to be active in that process, you need to have massive amounts of input. So that is one half of the equation that you can, you need to find like the input that you like and the input that you can sort of understand. So that's sort of like the comprehensible input part of the whole thing. And the second part is the production uh, part. Uh, and that one, you know, um, I would say that in, in the comprehension part is all about quantity you know to get uh, uh, as much of the language as, as you can in the production part it's a little bit the opposite and the production part is all about quality because i think that it's, it's very important that students understand that like listening and reading to uh you know a language is is one thing but speaking the language and writing the language is another game it's it's like a totally different thing it's they are not even related you can even think of it like that they are related of course but you you should have the mentality that they are two very different processes and when it comes to producing um the main uh, advice that i can give is to focus on the high frequency words and high frequency verbs and uh, for producing verbs are everything pretty much i think that you know um when it comes to verbs you don't really need to handle that many verbs but there are some key verbs in every language that are super necessary and you need them all the time like in spanish those are you know ser start which is to be tener to have decir to say uh ir to go dar to give you know those five verbs right there you know you need them for everything. So make sure that you're really solid with those five verbs. And the process is going to be slow. The process of actually like correctly mastering those verbs, it's, it's going to take a while. And, and that's something that is, that is kind of frustrating with students that, oh my God, it's just so five verbs. Like I should be able to learn them in, in a day or in afternoon. But the thing is that you don't really want to learn them. You want to acquire them. You want to have them 
in your subconscious mind because the level in which you have to have those verbs is that you just use them without thinking about it, you know, like that, because you're going to need them like that. I went to the store. You need the verb to go in the past tense. You need you need to to produce that like like super fast. So so yeah, that's one uh, one aspect right there to focus. And, and don't try to go beyond that, you know, spend a lot of time just focusing on the core verbs of the language and the core conjugations uh, as well, which usually is, you know, the present tense, you know, the present tense and the past tense of the 10 most common verbs in your language. That is stuff that is going to give you maybe like a year of study time, you know, because, you know, it, it's, it's, that, it's that intensive uh, to just spend with that. And that is going to be your core. That is going to be your language core. After you have managed to 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 master almost like a sub, uh, subconscious level, those 10 verbs, you can, you know, start, uh, um, you know, like getting more verbs into the list and expanding your language core. And if you have also been doing the whole comprehension aspect, that comprehension aspect is now feeding your production aspect as well. So the whole thing just starts, you know, you know, blowing up and it's kind of like a snowball effect. And that's that's the other uh, takeaway for students that at the beginning, the process might be really, really slow and like nothing is happening. But once once it kicks in, it just starts, you know, uh, your level of ability just starts exploding and you, you don't really believe it. So so, yeah, that's sort of like <laughs> what I would recommend students to Thank you so much. I love hearing about this because all of these things happened to me, but I wasn't thinking about them consciously with you. So this idea of keywords. Now, listeners, don't run out and get the top thousand keywords. Please don't do that. Like Emmanuel said, he picked five, five that are key, not a thousand, like all those books. Yeah. Don't waste your time with those. And then you can mix a little fluent in three months, Benny Lewis wisdom in that you do me specific words. So Emmanuel and I, our first couple of weeks, I wrote up a list of important verbs and some of them were important to me. So I talk about language learning a lot. So the verb to learn was something I was going to use a lot. I also share a lot of my knowledge with other friends. So to share was, a, it was one of my frequent words. It was one of the first 20, I think we came up with 25 words. And so I, I took some that I really wanted. And then I asked you what you think about these other ones. I was lucky because I because I already had my 25 favorite verbs from from French that I accidentally happened upon. I'm like, which ones do I use the most? Those are the ones I'm going to do with Spanish. But you can do the same. Just please don't go out and look at a website and pick the top 500 or top frequent uh, and then learn them. You don't need you don't need to do that. Um, this question is for, for both Benny and you. Um, <clears throat> uh, you and I, during one of the challenges, I had a challenger that... Uh, was in China, an American in China during the lockdown, like as the lockdown happened. And I just saw him spiral. I mean, he was just having a really hard time. Culturally, not being able to speak Mandarin. He was homesick and he was, you know, I could just see that he was, um, he was in an, an emotional roller coaster. We all were, but he was in, you know, ground zero, right? So <clears throat> I talked to you about him. I was like, well, I'm going to use my Spanish lessons in Spanish to find out what Emmanuel would do. So you coached me on helping him because he was overwhelmed by everything, every single thing. And here's the question you had mentioned, you need to break it down even more for him. He has to have a task so simple that his brain doesn't get overwhelmed and that he gets a success. And then he will go from there. When people are overwhelmed, 
And I think about this, like when I tried shadowing, I tried to pick up a podcast and shadow it. That was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my entire life. It was terrible because I, and I became overwhelmed. And then I was like, okay, shadowing doesn't work. And I didn't touch it again for two years. And I'm, I'm trying it again now and I'm using it in tiny, tiny pieces. So my question to both of you is, first of all, what would you recommend to a student that wants to learn, but is completely overwhelmed with the process? And what is this what does it mean? What does breaking it down into smaller pieces mean to you? Yeah, so so it's the power of chunks, really, like dividing everything in chunks. And when you think of languages, what's the chunk, basically? So you have speech, and you can think of speech as paragraphs, and, you know, a paragraph is pretty much a collection of, of sentences, um, you know, uh, in sequence, of course. Uh, so if you go to languages, pretty much the... Um, the minimum thing that you need for actual meaning is the sentence. So the sentence is is everything, pretty much. And to create a sentence, like the nucleus of the sentence, once again, we, we, we return to the same thing, is the verb. So just focusing on the next sentence is pretty much the, the most important thing. Um, I, I have been like really influenced by, by Blaine Ray, who's the creator of, of TPRS. And he has had a, a super big impact in the way that I, that I teach and that I, um, that I pretty much see language of position now. And he has a, a really, a really cool mantra that he said he doesn't believe sort of like in language curriculums. He says that the curriculum is the next sentence pretty much. So. Yeah, that's what that's what you have to focus on. Like, for example, if you want to say something like, you know, if someone asks you, what did you do um, last week? That's pretty much a story. And if you cannot come up with everything is because you cannot you weren't able to to start with the first sentence. So usually the problem is always one sentence that is throwing you off. And usually the thing that is throwing you off about the sentence is one one verb. So you need to start there. So just start with a verb. And once that you get the verb down, you can start adding stuff to the verb, you know, a sentence, um, a, a small, short sentence, you know, and then you start adding more stuff to the sentence. And then maybe you can later connect to another sentence. But at the end of the day, just chunking down everything to just one sentence using one verb if it takes you a whole day to do that, it's okay. It's okay because speed doesn't really matter. You, you want to have like a strong foundation and only from there you can start, you know, piling more bricks. Uh, but, but yeah, you, you, you just focus on one sentence at a time pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best answer to that question is to, to break it down into chunks and to have um, these like uh, smaller goals that you can aim towards. One different answer I could give to that is that you are going to feel overwhelmed if you're comparing yourself to the absolute best. If you're thinking, I'm a failure because I could be somebody who's mastered the language, I could be as good as a native speaker, and I'm not, then that is an impossible thing to put on yourself. It's uh, it's too much weight on your shoulders. So one thing that's really helped me to kind of push forward, even though I'm overwhelmed and I am in a country and a culture I don't understand, and it's imperative that I, I speak this language so that I can be social and just interact with other humans, 
and even do basic things like being able to order food, but like eventually to make friends and such. But what I'd like to do is instead of thinking, you know, when can I be at the mastery stage? I take a step back and I decide that I am a beginner. It is okay for me to be a beginner and I embrace that. And I decide how can I be the best beginner I can possibly be rather than thinking, how can I be the most fluent speaker imaginable of this language? Because I'm going to fail. I'm going to feel like I'm way undershooting all my goals. Whereas being an excellent beginner is a lot more achievable. If instead of thinking I want to have deep conversations to share my feelings with people, I'll think I want to be able to order a coffee and my goals are a lot more humble, but they are things that then I can take wins from. And so like this beginner stage for a lot of people is like the worst thing. It's like, I want to get out of here as quickly as possible. Whereas I just accept this is my home right now. later on there'll be other things but right now i'm a beginner i want to be the best beginner i can be and this person who's overwhelmed in china is kind of thinking i i want to speak fluent mandarin and i want to be able to read every chinese character that exists and that that's just too much whereas if their world is kind of reduced to just i want to be able to have basic interactions with people and then expanding uh like with time uh, beyond that, it becomes a lot less overwhelming because the latter of being a beginner is achievable. Whereas the goal of like, I want to have, uh, I, I want to reach perfection in the language is impossible. So you are going to feel overwhelmed. You are definitely going to fail and you're going to kick yourself for it. Whereas you'll feel these successes with more achievable goals. And this is uh, in a nutshell why I decide I'm just going to be the best beginner that I can possibly be. That's my answer to that question. Uh, so, Emmanuel, I would love to hear where are you going fr- from this? Like, what are your plans moving forward? Do you uh, want to expand your teaching business? Do you think you might dive into more languages? Do you think you might learn more about language acquisition theory? What, where do you see the next years going for you? Yeah, yeah. In regards of languages, I, you know, I pretty much like to keep training myself as a teacher and sometimes just to learn more about about language acquisition. Uh, so definitely, one of the, um, as I already mentioned, one of the great, greatest experience that I have had as a language teacher is receiving training from from the TPRS methodology. So, so I would really like to continue a little bit more with that when I have the time, because I think what those guys are doing, like Blaine Ray, um, it's really impactful. And, and yeah, I would like to continue working a little bit more with them. And right now it's, it's a little bit tricky because, you know, I have two jobs and it's it's difficult to keep the balance of of the two so i'm a, i'm a programmer but i'm also teaching languages um but um yeah maybe when when the other job gets a little bit calmer i can you know i can give more more lessons at that time so i'm i'm still you know on on my website right there which is um ispandom spell h i s p a uh, mx, which is, you know, uh, my website right there. Uh, eventually I would like to expand it a little bit more and maybe offer more like group lessons, uh, using the TPRS methodology. Uh, but still it's more like a, like a future project right now. Yeah. 
There's one more question that I want to ask you about a question. And again, I'm going to pick both of your brains because when I have experts in front of me, why am I not? This is why I host this this podcast. I co-host to get good answers. Um, I hear a lot of challengers telling me, and even intermediate language learners, when am I going to stop translating my head? How do you force yourself to stop translating in your head? I I didn't. I It just happened. Um, what do you tell people when they say, I need to stop translating in my head? How do I stop that? Um, Emmanuel and Benny, please, if you could jump in after. Yeah, this was a topic that I think we discussed in my in my master's degrees about the research about that. And they pretty much say that it never really goes away in the sense that once you have your L1, your L1 is kind of like pretty like installed in your mind. But what ends up happening when you achieve fluency in a, in a language is that you you sort of still translate, but you do it so fast that you don't even have idea that is happening. And I think that's what people really, really want. Um, so, so yeah, that, that is essentially fluency. You, you're doing it so fast that you don't even recognize that you're starting with your L1 and then jumping to your L2. Uh, or you're, you're still using your L1 to, to access the L2, but it's just so fast that, that it doesn't, that it doesn't happen. But, you know, in, in a, in, like being aware of that, I I would say that don't worry too much about it. It's just another burden to worry about when you're learning languages. Like, oh, but I'm still thinking in, in my, like, who cares? What cares is that you express yourself and that the other person gets you and that you get the other person back. That That's what you get. I think it's like having like this mindset, of, oh, but I need to think in the language. It's kind of like this kind of like obsession of kind of like a very like sport type of obsession of doing something in a certain way. And like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter really. Don't, don't worry about that. It's, it's not, it's not worth it. So just try to get the language in whatever way you can get it out and, and, and don't worry, don't worry too much about it. So my answer to, to that question is very similar. I, I really like this, that it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's kind of echoing what I said before, being okay with being a beginner. Being a beginner means you are going to be translating. You are going to be thinking in your head, I want to go. Yo quiero ir. And you're just kind of word for word processing that. And I understand a lot of people would say, but I don't want to translate. And, and I would say it's just life. You're, you're a beginner, so you're going to translate. But if if someone really wants to get out of this, like one thing that I did do as an intermediate uh, level learner in some of my languages, I don't do it all the time. Like I'm, I'm an advanced level Portuguese learner and I'm not doing this. But with Spanish, I did get a monolingual dictionary. So when I came across a word I didn't know, I would look it up in a Spanish dictionary. So not a Spanish-English dictionary, a Spanish dictionary, which would then define the word for me. And I would get, uh, I would suddenly understand what it meant because I'd have the context already. And then I'd have this explanation. And this way I'm using the language to learn the language, which is already useful in, in and of itself. But I'm avoiding like that that word that's the English translation and it kind of helps me but at the same time I'm still going to translate and like I said I still in my advanced languages will just look up the word because that might be a little quicker uh, but that's that's my answer is consider using a monolingual dictionary but that's not really useful for beginners because beginners are going to find it's just it's too complicated there's too too many words you don't know and you're kind of 
um, defeating the purpose because the definition has other words. You just have to go look up anyway. So um, uh, as an intermediate learner, that's what I would say. Um, and then... Uh, and also reading dictionaries just like like that, for example, just opening the book of a dictionary and just reading all of the words and all the definitions, that's something that is, that is it's kind of weird, but it's kind of powerful because you end up learning about the words that you have never, you have never like acquired anywhere else. So that, that also works quite well. It's a very random way to acquire vocabulary, but, uh, you know, uh, whatever floats people's boats is what I say. Um, so the very last question that we always ask people who are guests in the podcast, uh, because this is the language hacking podcast, is how would you define language hacking? For me, it's pretty much like being okay with the process of knowing that, you know, producing a language is going to take, it's going to take a lot of, uh, a, a long time and being okay with it. And pretty much just, yeah, you know, um, spending time with the, with the core verbs and with the core vocabulary, because it doesn't look like a hack. It, it looks like something, um, very simple that you're doing and that you're, you're not advancing, uh, that much, but just by staying there, if you are able of creating a good foundation with the core verbs and the core vocabulary of your language, that's pretty much everything that you need to grow from that point. So everything is about developing that strong um, core of the language with the most common verbs, with the most common conjugations, and just get them as best as you can. And it doesn't even matter how, 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 how long it takes. So that's, that's the most important thing for starting your, your language. Absolutely agree. So thank you very much, Emmanuel. This has been a very interesting chat. So all the resources you talked about, the methodologies, and of course your own website will be in the show notes for t uh, today's episode. So people can look them up and uh, find out a lot more about what was introduced here. So thank you very much for sharing your story with us. No, thank you for inviting me. Really appreciate it. So until the next time, happy language learning, everybody. Happy language learning. And that's a wrap. What an insightful conversation. Time for some takeaways. Benny, what was a highlight for you during this interview? I mean, there were loads of highlights. I, I like some of the quotes, like language is a performance skill. Um, you don't want to learn them. You want to acquire them. Uh, lots of great quotes there. But I guess the biggest takeaway is something that I've always kind of intuitively applied in my classes, and that is to focus on the core verbs. And what you said is just as true. We don't want to get bogged down with the top 1000 words. I might get to that pretty soon in my process. But ultimately, what's what's infinitely more useful are the core verbs, because these are the ones that I'm going to be needing to rely on when I'm struggling and hesitating. I don't need to say shoelace. I need to say have. I need to say go. So these are the ones that um, regardless of the language you're learning, when you're starting off, try to get these initially as quickly as possible. 
uh, with a language like Spanish, where you have conjugation, try to learn, uh, try to branch off the core uh, infinitives or dictionary forms into the you and I forms, because that's what you're going to be saying most when you're addressing your teacher. And um, that's that's kind of the big takeaway for me is uh, reminding people to focus on those core verbs. And like you said, you came up with a list of like 20 and that's a, that's so much more useful than uh, generic 1000 most frequently used words because those word lists tend to come from written forms. So they're like auto analyzed from newspapers or something. So technically they are frequently used, but they're not frequently used in beginner conversations, uh, especially for learners. There's words learners are more likely to need to use. So um, definitely focus on the core verbs and you'll do a lot more with those. That was my big takeaway. What about yours? Well, I wrote all about verbs as well. I feel like I got to see behind the wizard's curtain, the Wizard of Oz curtain, because I always felt like our lessons were really smooth and they flowed well. And I, I knew that there was a method behind it, but I didn't know. And so when he started saying he listens to the student and finds out what verbs they know and build on that, that is how with only 20 words, he made me feel like I was speaking Spanish to him because he was speaking what I, so I would say language exchange partners, think about this. Don't try to teach your language exchange partner a new word, only use the small circle that they're in. And that was a real surprise to me. Um, the other thing was something that you said, which, I mean, I, I know so many Bennyisms, but this one, I guess, just escaped me. And that is focus on being the best beginner you can be. And so I, I recently told my husband, I'm like, am I charming? Because I think I'm really charming when I speak a new language. But I think what I was trying to say is I am charming because I'm in, in a well, I don't know. You have to ask my language exchange partners, but I, I try to be charming. I try to make a connection right away as a beginner, no matter how low my level is. So it's not about being the most articulate beginner. It's about being the most um, easy to talk to beginner. So I'm not falling apart. So this idea of being the best uh, beginner really was something that I'll take away for a long time. So thank you for that. All right. So we are at the end of our podcast. Friends, we hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you are, let us know by reaching out to Benny at info at fluentin3months.com. We love hearing from you. Until next time, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave us a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Alice Semino, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.